Hello, bonjour and ahoy. I'm Roger Hilton, media presenter at GlobeSec, and welcome back to Security Hooligans, a podcast about modernizing NATO, powered by the NATO 2030 Global Fellows. Our journey to collect air miles and, of course, elite travel status continues as we embark on our second installment of regional security assessments across the Alliance. The Hooligans Travel Party is again all-star packed and today stretching three continents. Coming to us from the land of the rising sun in Tokyo is fellow Montrealer Matthew Jablonski, currently working as the Coordinator Defense and Security Committee, as well as Mediterranean and Middle East Special Group at the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. A few kilometers or miles away in London is James Black, research leader at RAND Europe. And finally, only a skip away across the Atlantic in Washington, D.C. is Frederico Bossari, the Leonardo Fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Summer is over, so it's time to put away those bathing suits, no more casual apero splitzes, and it's time to get down to business. So picking up where we left off with our last tool to false, what was confirmed is that the multitude of threats facing NATO cannot be reduced to an either-or situation. Transatlantic defense is not a series of binary policy choices. It's a collection of tightly connected themes with varying levels of overlap where the triggering of one issue can create a dangerous cascade of others. As we've heard from NATO's brain trust and its allies, this is the spectrum all of NATO citizens are living under that require a true 360 degree approach to security. So to paraphrase a fellow Canadian, NATO is a Rolex, not a stopwatch. Security don't ever stop. So guys, let's get activated and ruckus. Uh, let's start with a quick press review here. So everybody, big news out of Russia on the partial mobilization today. Uh, any hot takes from the hooligans on this uh, on this news coming from? Yeah, I guess I can I can jump in on this. I mean, I think this is obviously a big um, apparent big escalation. We'll see actually what the reality of mobilization looks like. And we'll of course see how the international community respond. It's you know, very early days, hard to tell. But this is a kind of public recognition from Russia, from Russia. For more resources. And it's also, um, you know, it's, it's also going to signal a lot of escalation in how this is communicated to the Russian public. So this is not just a special military operation going on under otherwise kind of peacetime Russian conditions where everything is going fine, which has been very much the narrative to now. This is an operation where they're starting to say publicly and openly, we are going to need more warm bodies. Um, and we can debate the extent to which that's going to have a battlefield you know, impact and how quickly that impact will be felt, but at least politically within Russia and internationally, this is obviously very big news. Uh, so, I mean, James, it goes without saying that it's changing the narrative uh, at home and it might sort of start this dragnet of engulfing other people. Frederico or Matt, do you guys want to jump in for a hot take before we move uh, to our first regional assessment? Uh, all I was going to add on it is I, I haven't been able to to, to follow too closely um, kind of a, ahead of the, the Russian time zone over here in, in Japan today, although I will notice that or I had noticed rather that uh, online the price tickets uh, for leaving uh, Russia uh, direct flights uh, for example to cities like Istanbul have jumped up to you know 1300 uh, US dollars per ticket for a direct flight and it, it may be starting to feel uh, as, as, as James has mentioned the public sentiment it's really starting to get closer to home uh, the feeling of war in Russia whereas especially in the big cities it felt like the sentiment or from what we read that uh, war had not touch the country yet and it may starting to become uh, a reality now with these latest statements by by president putin uh, frederico anything to yeah, add on yeah. that 
Yeah, I mean, I agree absolutely with the, with that uh, that has been said so far. I mean, uh, I think we will see the effects of this, uh, you know, announced or like likely mobilization uh, more in terms of, you know, uh, socioeconomic impact at home in Russia rather than uh, at least uh, in the short term on, on the on the on the battlefield since it will be very difficult uh, for Russia and, and the Kremlin to you know uh, mobilize uh, you know a huge portion of its population in the current condition and as as you know Matthew was saying you know yesterday there, there was a spike in terms of Google you know Google research in Russia on how to leave the country for instance and of course also in uh, air, uh, flight tickets so I think uh, the first the first area where we will see this impact it will be domestically rather than you know uh, on the ground in Ukraine even though of course this this you know uh, change the narrative as a, as it has been said and and could like you know bring bring more manpower uh for russia and, and given the given the you know uh very very uh, precarious conditions in which um russian forces are now in ukraine at the moment uh well frederico thanks you know everybody thanks for the first impact james i can see you don't want to give a quick two-finger response before we move on yeah, just to really first stomp that point about the, the time lag between mobilization and battlefield impacts, as Federico said. I mean, there's a difference. They've been saying they want people who have already got military experience, although it's somewhat ill-defined as to what that means. But there's a difference between having people and having military capability, right? So it's going to take time to train people, to equip people, to get them organized, get them deployed. So we might see some kind of short-term impacts in terms of you know, non-combat jobs. So you can throw people into logistics jobs, you know, driving trucks or into, into Ukraine, carrying ammunition or whatever, you know, that doesn't take an enormous amount of training to do that pretty quickly. But in terms of getting people combat ready, that's a longer term prospect for Russia. And of course, by signaling this publicly, you know, it, it may also mark a kind of uptick in the international response to helping train and equip Ukrainian forces on the other side of the conflict. So it's going to be a while, I think, between we really see what this is going to mean in military and operational terms. Well, I mean, guys, that's just a great way to start off the podcast. And when taking together, whether it's the domestic situation in Russia or the response that it will elicit externally, I mean, it's still a nightmare for President Putin. So guys, we did our first quick press reviews here for the hooligans, but let's move on to what we're here for, which is our continuing voyage on regional assessments. James, you're coming to us from London Town, which was obviously the scene for global attention earlier this week. But you know, in your professional assessment, what do you make of the current threat landscape facing the UK and to a greater degree in the high north? Yeah, it's interesting times for the UK on, on a lot of fronts right now. Obviously, we've got a new king, we've got a new prime minister. We have pretty much an entirely new um, cabinet of ministers, although crucially, the defence secretary has stayed the same, Ben Wallace. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, about what's happening next. Uh, you know, the UK is facing a lot of the same kind of socioeconomic problems that most of the Western world are facing at the moment. So, you know, energy crisis, cost of living crisis, questions about an economic recession, so on and so forth. But for the UK, that's then overlaid by, you know, a new leadership um, and then kind of old problems around Brexit that clearly continue to dominate British politics uh, one way or another, and also colour its relations with many of its closest allies on the continent uh, and within NATO. So defence has kind of emerged um, as one of the 
potential kind of winners from Liz Truss as a new prime minister. So she has made you know public pledges in the uh, leadership campaign that she had to do over the summer that she wanted to grow defence spending you know very aggressively towards three percent of GDP. Um, and we can debate, you know, the timelines of when that will happen and, you know, what British GDP will be by that point and so on. But it's clearly a huge, huge deal. You know, the UK is already kind of vying with the French to be the second or the third um, in any given year, biggest defence spender in NATO. Um, taking it to 3% would make the UK comfortably the, the second biggest um, defence spender in NATO um, and would have a lot of implications, therefore, for its role also. So in terms of where, you know, where that money might go to, if it does indeed manifest, which does remain an if, um, there's a lot of, you know, specific capabilities that we could perhaps talk about a bit later that, that people might be interested in, in spending money on. But in terms of the kind of regional focus for the UK, it's very much tried to position itself between a couple of kind of countervailing um, trends. So the first trend is, you know, its ambition to have a, an ever greater role within NATO, particularly post-Brexit, where it hasn't got that EU role that it used to have. So, you know, NATO is a kind of key cornerstone of its European identity. And at the same time, to try and have a greater role in the Indo-Pacific region um, and supporting people like Australia and Japan and, and kind of somewhat more implicitly um, Taiwan and, and then obviously the United States. So, managing those kind of two things is, is always a challenge and the UK is very much that kind of you know it's trying to be global Britain is the you know is the tagline so within Europe though it's it's ultimately still going to be you know it's always going to be the focus right as much as this it's tilting more towards the Pacific and dealing with China the, the clearly the short-term challenge is is Russia and the geographical focus for the UK is its kind of immediate surroundings um, and within NATO, it's tried to carve out this role in the last few years as, as a kind of almost a regional leader uh, for kind of Northern Europe, uh, the kind of Baltic region, the Nordic countries, and then the kind of North Atlantic. So it's it's played a prominent role in things like the Joint Expeditionary Force or the JEF, which is a kind of subgrouping of Northern European NATO and non-NATO countries, um, although soon it will be all NATO once Sweden and Finland join uh, join the alliance. Um, and that's really been a kind of quick response force for Northern Europe has been the idea. So if we can't get all 30 nations or 32 nations in the near future to agree on an Article 5 response to a crisis, particularly an ambiguous kind of grey zone hybrid warfare type crisis, maybe the UK and a collection of like-minded countries can get their act together quicker and they've got a ready-made kind of regionally focused force that they can deploy to try and deter escalation. And that, that has really played into a kind of bigger focus on the North Atlantic and the High North in general. So the UK has um, you know, been investing heavily in its maritime capabilities, some new air capabilities, space is a big growth area for the UK. And it's got, you know, it's got a high north strategy now. Um, it's working very closely with people like Norway and Sweden and Finland. Um, you know, it's doing a lot more exercises, places where it's cold and snowy. And it's kind of re really kind of revitalized some of its old kind of Cold War era thinking around, you know, how do we confront Russia in, in that kind of area? Um, and I think, I, I guess, a final comment to kind of mark off my, my opening remarks is that you know the high north is is it's a growing area of interest and competition 
you know, it, it used to be an area that, um, you know, it's very cold, it's very wet, it's very remote, it's hard to get to, you know, Father Christmas lives there. So it's an area of kind of peaceful cooperation for the last kind of 20 years in lots of ways. It's an area of scientific cooperation. It's an area where, you know, everybody has an interest in cooperating on things like, you know, search and rescue for ships in the Arctic Circle. You know, nobody is against, you know, safety for people sailing through very choppy, difficult waters. Um, so it's, it's been an area that's been kind of isolated from broader like international tensions, but that's really, really changed, you know, in, in light of the broader deterioration of, of global politics over the last few years. Um, we're seeing China be much more assertive in the Arctic. We're seeing Russia investing very heavily in its Arctic coastline and military forces and infrastructure. And then we're seeing lots more kind of worrying activities up there, you know, things like GPS jamming. Um, or kind of instance at sea or, 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 you know, territorial claims and, and stuff like that. So although it's not a region that, you know, is probably at the top of people's list for where might, you know, a future war start, it's an area that I think if if there ever is a major crisis involving NATO and particularly Russia, it's an area that inevitably is going to become a focus quite quickly. So so in kind of military kind of jargon terms what we what we talk about is it's not an area of huge risk of vertical escalation so a crisis that might start in the arctic and then grow up into a big full-blown you know conflict in the arctic but it is an area with a lot of risk for horizontal escalation so the idea that a crisis might start somewhere like the baltic states for example and then quite quickly come to engulf this much broader geographical area including the arctic and there's really a couple of key reasons there. It's it's you know it's where Russian nuclear uh, bastion is, so it's where they keep their nuclear submarines. It's where they they feel that they could be attacked from the US and Canada, and it's also how Russia can access the North Atlantic with its ships and planes and, and so on, and therefore try and disrupt flows of troops and supplies from North America into Europe. So it's kind of very strategically important, and that's really why the UK has kind of rewoken up to that kind of geostrategic reality if it's near abroad and has tried to focus so much on that being a, a key contribution it's going to play within NATO. Well, James, I mean, it goes without saying, I think everybody is so relieved, especially in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkan that the UK have reawoken to it. And you've already picked, you've made some great points about sort of the continuity and the holdover with Secretary Wallace. Like you, James, me and uh, me and Matt also have a new king with, with King Charles. But in general, as you said, it's really going to be a linchpin of defense uh, in Europe. And I think for all of our listeners, what was really interesting for me from James is the idea that the scenario planning, if they aren't able to come to a consensus that a group of countries can act and mobilize very quickly. And with all of the experience that the UK have both in the past and the future and the support of Ukraine, I think it's really, uh, it's very encouraging to see for everybody. So while there's some, maybe some political trouble uh, at the UK navigating, it's great to see that defense is still at the top uh, and that they're striving to be a real leader in it. Uh, switching Matt to you in the land of the rising sun, um, maybe you want to first start us off, Matt, by telling you, you know, what are you doing in Japan? Uh, and then maybe give us our take on what you look as the, you know, the main security issues going on in Central and Eastern Europe. Sure. Well, yeah, thanks again, Roger. So, yeah, I'm in Japan uh, this week with the NATO Parliamentary Assembly delegation, and we're, we're meeting with, with officials across the Japanese government to discuss how the country views uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how it assesses the current regional uh, security environment in East Asia, notably between uh, China and, and Taiwan, uh, and also how uh, NATO can enhance cooperation with um, 
Japan in particular, obviously, but also other countries uh, such as New Zealand, Australia, and uh, the Republic of, of Korea. So it's been quite an interesting three days so far, two more days left, uh, and one uh, mission which I hope will, will bear fruits in the, the months and, and, and years to come in terms of uh, NATO's cooperation with countries uh, of uh, the Indo-Pacific region. But um, going circling back to Central and Eastern Europe, uh, I can only agree with uh, Roger what you just said on, on, on the UK and, and its engagement and focus on the region, particularly since uh, Russia's renewed invasion of Ukraine at the end of, of February. Uh, a lot can be said for, for Britain's uh, efforts to establish uh, this uh, global Britain policy, but uh, the country has become one uh, which the countries of, of Central and Eastern Europe have uh, come to rely on and, and can take comfort in its messaging and its actions since, since February. That, that is for sure, and uh, very happy to, to see the continuity in, in Secretary Wallace remaining in his post as well, and the renewed commitment in defense from the UK, um, you know, even under a new incoming government. Um, that said, uh, from Central Eastern European countries' perspective, their focus is even more centered rather than the UK's for, for obvious geographic and historical reasons. It's all about Ukraine. It's all about uh, the war. The main uh, concern uh, is, is Russia, its uh, nefarious activities on the border, its aggressive activities, one in which these countries have been uh, voicing their concern about uh, within NATO uh, and for those who are members within the European as well, European Union as well for quite a long time. And there is significant or multiple uh, challenges that, that come with that. Uh, the main one being, you know, a spillover, a potential spillover of, of the conflict into one of the neighboring uh, countries that would then, as a result, uh, engage uh, the alliance. Uh, this was particularly a concern, you know, at the beginning of the war when we weren't really sure how it was going to develop. Um, that said, uh, there's also the other challenge of uh, continuing to push for support uh, for Ukraine uh, amongst Western partners. We mentioned the, uh, the United Kingdom as a, as a staunch supporter uh, of, of, or at least seen as in the region as a staunch supporter of Central and Eastern European countries' views uh, and, and, and as a strong defender of Ukraine, but there is not the same level of confidence, uh, you know, for some other allies and also for, for other uh, more Western uh, allies as well. And Going forward, it will be uh, it's seen as a challenge for these governments to continue to uh, conduct diplomacy in order to keep the focus on Ukraine in order for that support not to wane, whether it, uh, that support is financial or, or, or military, so that Ukraine can continue to fight and, and, and defend uh, its territory, uh, but also indirectly uh, defend uh, the eastern flank as well, at least from the perspective of these countries because there's, it brings me to, to another point of uh, the fear of, of Ukraine uh, losing the war and, and losing its uh, independence. Um, former uh, Polish leader Józef Piłsudski once said that without an independent uh, Ukraine, there is no independent Poland. Uh, and this was said uh, within a different context at a different time, but the, the core of the message remains in the sense that if 
Ukraine were to uh, become, you know, be, were to be taken over by by Russia, the the eastern uh, flank and, and a country that borders many or is very near to to many other uh, allies uh, would then become hostile or instable, uh, severely affecting uh, the security perspectives for uh, the region, which is also something we have seen in, in uh, well, at least since the, their last round of elections when uh, repression when increased significantly in Belarus. And since then the country has uh, become taken further steps to become closer to, to Russia, has implemented or has accepted a new constitution that would in theory allow uh, weapons, uh, Russian nuclear weapons to be deployed on Belarusian territory. And we've also seen Belarus uh, be an active uh, player um, and have an active role in the war against uh, Ukraine as well. And so this is also another country, another situation that um, Poland and the Baltic countries um, are, are looking at very, very closely. And so this is where the focus uh, remains. And you, officials of these countries have been very outspoken, uh, some more than, than others, about the need uh, for NATO to maintain its strong support, the importance of, of Ukraine uh, carrying on and, and, and ultimately succeeding in this, in this conflict, and also what it means uh, security-wise uh, uh, and, and emotionally for, for countries of Central and Eastern Europe. So this is where the, the focus is now. I don't see it uh, changing anytime soon, but these are kind of the, the main three or four points that uh, people people have been looking at. Well, Matt, it goes without saying with that Asian vibe you got going on. That was some real fortune cookie quote you going on there about a lack of independent Ukraine is a lack of independent Poland. <laughs> and I mean, I never heard that before, so I'm really glad you dropped that. We'll have to get that going. But I mean, just quickly building on what James said, I mean, while the UK has been one of the main leaders in terms of delivery and putting forward on sanctions and everything like that. I think I've also been ex exceptionally proud of countries like Slovakia, Poland, and the Czech Republic, who have also really uh, stepped up and they've really done a lot of donating equipment, welcoming refugees, and they've really come into their own. And as you said, this is really an existential threat for them. Uh, and given you know the historic grievances of the past, they're really not joking around with this. So even smaller countries, as I said, Slovakia, Czech Republic, have really uh, have really stepped up to the plate. So uh, Matt, I see you want to give a two finger response, but uh, we don't want to let Frederico uh, relax too quickly uh, over there in DC. So Matt, just a quick no, response. No, no, I just no. We'll it was just no. It was just to, to. I mean, you touched on the in, in contemplating the, the the support that those countries have have given, and it was just to say that I'll, I'll follow up on that a bit later because, of course, that that needs to be highlighted, uh, and and it can't be understated the role that all of those countries have played in in the way that the situation has developed over these last six months. Uh, well, I mean, now, Frederico, I, I said earlier in the intro about putting away your Apollo splits and, you know, we've been all the way high north, we've been in Central Europe, so now it's time to warm up a little bit uh, in Italy and the Mediterranean. So, Frederico, obviously, like, the situation in the Mediterranean in the past had really reached its peak with a lot of migrants and a lot of soft security threats, but while you're based in Washington, I mean, can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about how you view the current security situation in Italy and then on a greater extent uh, in the, you know, in the Mediterranean? or NATO southern flank? Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks, uh, Roger. Um, 
uh, I mean, the the situation in uh, in the Mediterranean is uh, it's very complex, uh, and but it's different, of course, compared to to the other two theaters that we have we have uh, you know uh, listened about so far. Um, I would say that you know the the real challenge here is that there is no just one challenge uh for nato and for 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 its its members in this part of the of the of the alliance it's 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 a kaleidoscope of of you know problems of and uh, and of threats that often but not, not not always you know tends to overlap tends to you know intertwine and so makes the 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 picture for nato and uh much more complex um uh, I would say, I mean, starting starting from Italy, I mean, the uh, of course the situation is pretty similar to to uh, to the United Kingdom ones, in in the sense that, of course, uh, politically speaking, we 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 have uh, uh, an outgoing uh, uh, government now uh, that uh, that will uh, will live, you know, is 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 role uh, in a matter of days, and we will have elections on on uh, on Sunday. Um, so the the real the real the real you know uh, problem for Italy is to is to uh, you know uh, maintain the trajectory in terms of you know uh, commitment to supporting Ukraine um, and you know also in terms of uh, improving and boosting its its defense capabilities uh, that the, the the previous government the Draghi government uh, uh, was you know undertaking. And uh, I think you know there are there are you know there have been a lot of a lot of talk about the the right wing coalition that will likely win the election according to the latest polls uh, about you know uh, uh, the problems that could 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 emerge in terms of you know commitment to Ukraine uh, and some of some of 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 the leaders of this of this coalition have been you know. Um, quite you know uh critical uh at the beginning at least uh, when it comes to the provision of weapons to to ukraine and uh the sanction against russia uh but but overall i think uh this you know these differences have uh somewhat you know uh you know diminished and within this coalition uh of course the the clear goal is to maintain italy firmly in the in the western fold and I don't see much of a change in terms of, you know, foreign policy when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, uh, supporting, uh, supporting, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine and and also in maintaining the, the sanctions against Russia. Um, there are, you know, uh, politicians in this in this part of the political spectrum have confirmed that Italy will also continue to to invest in defense. Uh, they want to reach the the uh, GDP, the two percent GDP target uh, uh, by two like twenty twenty five rather than twenty twenty eight, uh, as it was, you know, uh, decided uh, back back uh, in in the spring. So there are there are interesting you know interesting uh, developments and 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 the premises are you know are good even though of course there are there are some you know 
differences and the public opinion of uh, in Italy is very you, you know it, it start to to you know to sense this this you know fatigue uh, related to the war uh, also because of the energy crisis the spike uh, uh, the spiking inflation and 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 other factors but overall I don't see Italy uh, to change its its you know foreign policy uh um, when it comes to ukraine when it comes to nato uh, Frederica, um, if, uh, yeah, if i could just jump in yeah. for one second i mean for we it's pretty evident hearing from james and from matthew you know where future investments are going to go and all of the pledges after the madrid summit but for the average listener right now Frederico, i mean where is italy going to invest this money i mean is it in you know traditional capabilities or is it in things that are much more aligned with what it needs to do uh on the southern flank well, this is a this is a very good question. I mean, Italy, uh, the current government um, has you know uh, enacted uh, in the summer the the new defense strategy uh, for the Mediterranean. Uh, so basically, uh, the core geographic uh, the core geographic interest of Italy, of course, lies in the Mediterranean. Uh, even though uh, Rome has, you know, uh, provided a lot of support to Ukraine and is looking, you know, with 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 careful attention to 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 the eastern flank and is is providing also uh, capabilities to NATO uh, in terms of air policing, you know, so aircrafts uh, in in uh, in Romania. It has a, a, a is leading a, a a battle group, a multinational battle group in 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 Latvia. So. You know, Italy is is present in that flank, but of course, the Mediterranean is the main is the main area of interest. Uh, and um, you know, the, in the new budget for 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 the next uh, for the next three years, uh, when it comes to defense, uh, 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 there are a lot of resources uh, been you know uh, um, uh, been flushed into you know new investments. Uh, uh, in terms of you know new technologies, uh, modernization of weapon systems, uh, and 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 also you know new capabilities uh, from unmanned systems to you know missile defense, and and also uh, you know uh, of course uh, 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 I mean new new project in terms of you know uh, aircrafts and, and 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 vehicles, but at the same time. Uh, there, there's, there's also, I mean, investments are 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 key are, are a key part, of course, in the defense budget. Uh, but one of the things that Italy has, you know, suffered the most uh, in 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 recent years is the, you know, uh, um, the uh, the lack of personnel in many in many arms of the of the armed forces um and 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 also the average age of the of the armed forces is pretty high compared to other other countries in europe so the the government is trying to improve uh you know the image of the armed forces uh and is trying to you know uh um uh, to uh, draw the attention of young generations in italy it's not an easy task but it's trying to do that is also trying to you know uh raise the uh, 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 you know uh, remuneration for for personnel in in some areas but one of the 
one of the problems that resources, for instance, also in terms of uh, um, um, you know uh, management management of, of equipment, but also training, uh, um, it, uh, have been you know very very low in recent years, and this has created a, like a very problematic uh, situation where you have uh, um, part of the armed forces that are continuously, you know, deployed abroad for international missions, a lot of them. So the, from, from 2022 uh, on, there will be 12,000 uh, uh, Italians personnel uh, deployed abroad, which is a lot. Um uh, for Italy and for European country standards, but also you have a situation where you know most of the most of the personnel at, uh, at home has you know you know uh, very limited you know uh, windows for training and for uh, uh, you know uh, maintaining the equipment. So this is something the the government is trying to address, to address, but it were, it requires uh, years. Well, speaking of addressing issues, Frederico, I can see that James is chomping at the bit here. You hit, you set him off with some of the words, you know, the, something related to force generation. So, James, uh, do you have sort of like a little bit of feedback on Frederico before we move on? Yeah, I mean, it's similar challenges for, you know, for a lot of countries in NATO, right? It's how do you transition from being a military force designed and equipped for the industrial age, which is what pretty much all of them are, to being a military force kind of designed for the 21st century and the information age. So there's all these debates, you know, we've seen around the Ukraine war around what are the lessons from that ongoing conflict, what types of weapons are really useful, you know, do we need more mass, just like quantity of stuff, or do we need more quality and, you know, high-end precision capabilities? And those debates yeah. are still raging, but there's this kind of real transition from how do you, you know, how do you prepare yourself for the force that you're going to need in 2025 or 2030, whilst at the same time delivering more with what you've got today? So the UK, the kind of former chief of defence in the UK, um, General Snake Carter, kind of characterised this as kind of working out what are your sunset capabilities, so those things where the sun is setting, and you need to kind of eke out the last bit of value you can get from them before you get rid of, you know, those capabilities. And then what are your sunrise capabilities? So the artificial intelligence, the robotics, space capabilities, you know, direct energy weapons, cyber, all these sorts of exciting things. How do you do both and how do you transition? That's really hard. And I think Federico is completely right that actually a big a big part of that is focusing in on it's it's less about the technology and the structures of your forces and all these sorts of things, although they are important. A lot of it is going to be about people. It's going to be about training. It's going to be about culture. Um, and, and arguably, yes. you know, technology is hard, but you can get smart engineers to fix it. But people are even harder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fixing fixing the culture, fixing, you know, an innovative mindset in armed forces, all these sorts of things, arguably bigger kind of sociological challenges than, uh, you know, designing well, yeah, yeah. No, and James, I mean, both Frederico and Matt, excellent opening interventions there. I hope Matt is still with us in uh, in Japan. But as you said, I mean, ingenuity and creativity and culture, I mean, that is, it could be argued that has been the main difference between Ukraine and Russia and the success they've had. But everything we've just spoken about is the perfect segue to our next topic about sort of evaluating NATO's responses. We've already outlined all of you sort of like the multiple challenges facing NATO, East, West, North, and South. So let's get the ball rolling on sort of like how you think NATO is doing so far. So Matt, uh, from there in Tokyo, like what is your assessment of, of NATO's responses, you know, to the main problems uh, in Central and Eastern Europe? And then we'll do the tour uh, de table. 
Well, I mean, on, on the level of, of the alliance, I think I can say that from the perspective of the region, there's a general uh, sense that the, the right decisions have, have been made, especially um, at the at the Madrid summit. Um, there was a there's been a feeling for for several years, as I kind of made reference to um, when I spoke a bit earlier about countries voicing their concerns about Russia's activities and, and plans in the region. Uh, that NATO should really uh, take a stronger you know stance against against Russia and take concrete action. Um, and I was uh, visiting uh, Latvia and Estonia earlier this year in May, about a month before the uh, new strategic concept was was unveiled in Madrid, and speaking with with people in in both capitals, uh, there was a, a real feeling uh, from the Baltic region, but this is also you know kind of cuts across all of, of Central Europe as well that. Uh, you know, NATO had to move away from this uh, tripwire approach, or, or um, in in Central and Eastern Europe, and move to a new force model and and, and rethink its its defense and, and deterrence posture. And and coming out of the, uh, the Madrid summit and some of the decisions that it's made, such as you know establishing uh, battle groups and increasing uh, levels potentially to to brigade levels, has been has been welcomed. Um, there's, however, also a feeling that, you know, these, and uh, I should also add, you know, the acceptance of, of Sweden and Finland or coming to an agreement, uh, with, with Turkey in order to proceed with the accession of Sweden and fin eventual accession of Sweden and Finland pending the final ratifications uh, among several allies into the alliance would significantly enhance regional security as well. Um, but that said, uh, there is also a feeling that we can even go uh, further, uh, notably uh, in establishing permanent uh, military bases in in some countries. Uh, the United States uh, announced that it would have a now a permanent presence in in Poland, for example. Uh, but you know, could this maybe not done by the United States itself? But could this be repeated? Uh, in in other places, uh, the feeling is uh, amongst most governments in the region. Yes, uh, currently the enhanced forward presence presences rather in the region have have grown, um, have almost outgrown uh, their size uh, that they are now, and those will will need to to continue to be reinforced uh, in order to to send the appropriate. Uh, deterrence messages and also to increase uh, the feeling of insure assurance rather uh, amongst uh, amongst those countries. And if I could just make a quick comment on uh, maybe not NATO's response itself, but a group of allies' response uh, throughout the region. I mean, you have to, uh, Roger, you already made reference to, to, to some of those countries earlier. Uh, you can only be, uh, I think, impressed with their reaction and their um, you know, efforts uh, to mobilize support for Ukraine since since uh, February, uh, uh, Poland has has reacted and supplied uh, significant military aid to Ukraine. Um, equipment uh, such as long-range artillery crabs that you know they've made a, a real difference on on the battlefield. Polish territory, as well as the territory of other countries, have been used. You know, uh, to to supply weapons to to Ukraine. Um, I would also mention, you know, other countries like Romania have have contributed significantly, changing their 
their own laws, you know, to, to be able to export weapons, not just to other NATO countries, but to partner countries like Ukraine, uh, as well as delivering humanitarian assistance. And even at a human level uh, throughout countries in the region, mobilizing, galvanizing support for Ukraine. And you've seen it, uh, maybe uh, civil society movements too, to raise money for, for new drones, whether those be in Poland or Lithuania, et cetera. So both, I think, uh, on a national level in the region, the response has been impressive. Uh, James mentioned uh, the UK's uh, ambition to raise uh, their military spending on GDP. Uh, Poland, uh, as well, has an ambition uh, to raise it to 3% of GDP, to even go as high as 5% of GDP, whether how realistic or, you know, what the time frame on that is, uh, can be, you know, assessed later, but that is what at least the government's stated ambition is. And so they are, they're all clear-eyed in their objectives as, as to what they want to do. And, and, and NATO's response has been robust as well, as we said, but there is room, um, to continue going forward on that. But I think, Matt, like as we open it up, I mean, if we go back to the earlier question in the lead-in of the introduction, it's sort of like security is interconnected and how it's not just these binary issues. So, I mean, James, you started us off on it. I mean, not just on a national level, but do you think amongst all of the interwoven challenges that NATO is facing, that whether it's a strategic concept or NATO and the allies, like, is it enough actually to respond to multiple crises at the same time? And I mean, it's like a horror movie. You're talking about all this advanced technology and uh, and lasers and whatnot. So, I mean, we'll open it up to James and then Federico. I mean, thinking big picture. I mean, is NATO can NATO walk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah, and that that's definitely the the, the question, right? So, I mean, you know, NATO is currently very busy, but it's not actually fighting a war. It's just indirectly supporting a a neighboring partner country. Um, but that has required a huge amount of political effort to galvanize and it's great that it has been able to galvanize that support for ukraine and, and hopefully that will continue but um it, it doesn't mean that the kind of inherent challenges of uh, an alliance of 30 or 32 nations as it will soon be go away like it's always going to be difficult there's always to, to come to consensus there's always going to be domestic political issues in, in individual states that are distracting policymakers. there's always going to be competing priorities I think what the crisis has shown, though, is the interconnectedness that you talk about. So, you know, issues that affect the East, i.e. Ukraine, are actually about broader kind of European security, they're about global security, they're about democracy, freedom, international law, kind of rules-based order, all these things. And, and it's all interconnected. Um, I think the, the challenge for NATO, of course, is that, the you know, the NATO is a military alliance. So NATO has got you know 75 years of experience in how do you create efficient military command structures and how do you you know develop deploy and use military forces in pursuit of political objectives but the question is how does that navigate a world that is ever more interconnected and where the threats actually cut across all areas of our, our daily lives so you know, we've seen that with the impact of economic sanctions on energy markets. We've seen it, the impact on trade, supply chains. All of these things are, you know, security concerns, but they are very much not in the direct control of, of NATO or of kind of defence and security ministries within, you know, national governments. They are cross-cutting issues that are about economic policy, about supply chain resilience. They're about engaging the private sector in a very different way. And they're about the individual decisions and behaviors of you know, individual companies, businesses, consumers, citizens. 
And NATO can't do all of that, right? Like, nor should it. It's it's not a kind of super state. It's a military alliance. So I think this crisis demonstrates the need for us to all continue kind of deepening connections between, you know, NATO and the EU, for example, because there's certain things the EU are very good at, which NATO is not so good at, and vice versa. Um, when it comes to policymaking, it, it speaks to the need for, you know, different collections of member states to take the lead on certain issues. Um, and I think it, it speaks also, you know, to the need for industry and civil society to be involved. And, uh, you know, it's been name checked a few times already. But, you know, we're seeing people who are like fundraising, you know, to, to send equipment to Ukraine. We're seeing people housing, you know, refugees in their homes. So there has been this groundswell of, of kind of popular support. And it's how how could you galvanize that in a, in a similar crisis or a different crisis in future? What are the lessons we need to learn and take away from that? And crucially, what can we learn from the Ukrainians, right? The Ukrainians have, are continuing to fight a war with kind of surprising success um, and commendable success. And they're doing it not because they've got the latest technology or whatever, really, they because they, you know, they have some Western supplied weapons, but generally speaking, they're using old school stuff, but they're doing it because they've got national will to fight, national unity, and they've been able to kind of mobilize the, the people. And I think there's, you know, there's there's real questions to be asked about, you know, could NATO do that in all scenarios? It probably could if it was attacked in a really overt major way, sure. But, you know, what if it was facing a slightly more ambiguous, controversial, ill-defined kind of sub-threshold, little grey men type threat? Would it be able to do the same thing? Who knows? So, yeah, I think there's a lot a lot to learn from the ongoing conflict. Um, we just need to make sure we learn the right lessons because there's always a, there's a long history of people learning the wrong lessons from the most recent war and then repeating those mistakes in the, in the next war, unfortunately. Oh, I think the case studies on the Ukraine conflict and Russia's invasion, they won't just be in the military realm, but they'll, they'll bleed into business, social cohesion, coaching, training. So there's a lot of it. And of course, everybody on the, on the podcast right now, the idea that the Ukrainians are MacGyvering so many of the solutions where they don't have the proper parts to fix some of the javelin systems or some of the other artillery and they're making it up on the spot is really just remarkable. And as you said, James, very critically, I mean, do we have the resilience to do something like that? So Federico, before we get down to the policy takeaways, you're over there in the heart of NATO uh, in Washington, D.C. So, I mean, what do you make of Matt and James' comments regarding the interconnectedness? And, you know, if you think NATO is prepared for all of these challenges at the same time? Yeah, thank you, Roger. Uh, well, it's a very challenging question. I mean, um, I can, I can for sure, you know, I agree with with both uh, Matthew and James on, you know, the uh, the need uh, to look at the conflict in Ukraine and you know, uh, grasp the lessons that you know, national cohesion, uh, you know, social unity are you know the basis because otherwise uh, you end up being you know. Uh, very much poorly efficient in the in 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 a conflict and and the, and the Russian Russian performances is, is you know confirming this trend. So no matter no matter how advanced your technology is, if you don't have the will to use it or if you don't use it properly, uh, I mean it's not sufficient to to win to win a struggle. And Ukrainians are, you know, are fantastic in this respect. Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to NATO, I think it will be, you know, uh, um, it will be a challenge to, you know, 
uh, you know, uh, to turn what is, it has been said in a strategic concept in terms of concrete actions and, and you know, uh, um, uh, intangible, you know, tangible decisions and, and, and actions on the ground. I mean, uh, uh, the strategic concept, of course, is a, a mainly political uh, strategic document. But when it comes to military uh, decisions, it's, it's a challenge because, of course, uh, uh, you need, you need uh, I mean, consensus, you need unity on how to act on on uh, a very broad uh, set of, of of you know of threats from the cyber cyber domain to you know uh, more subtle uh, propaganda uh, you know uh, in, in problems and we are seeing this for instance in Italy and in other western countries where you know public opinion has been very reluctant to you know to step up efforts uh, at least in part i would say i'm speaking for italy here but uh, 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 to step up efforts to support Ukraine further in his in his in his struggle against Russia so uh, it will be difficult to, to, you know, to turn this this political uh, uh, objectives and goals in, in in military terms. And when it comes to you know uh, practical capabilities, so the Ukrainian conflict, I think, has has shown the need, uh, shown the you know the need to uh, really rethink our you know our approach to uh, many many aspects of you know uh, you know operational operational aspects i mean starting from logistics and and supply capabilities uh, uh military mobility i mean uh, um, you you need really to to think how to redeploy uh, and, and you know uh, ammo stockpiles uh, in strategic locations increase your ammo reserves and this is this is i mean especially uh, uh also you know important for like uh, certain areas of 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 the military like you know ammunition and and this also includes the resilience and and you know uh, improvement of the industry sector in in uh, uh, when it comes to the production of ammunition uh, um, you know anti tank systems uh, anti tank guided missiles for instance uh, you know we are seeing also this in in the US um military mobility is another area where you know there are you know concerns that you know if a major conflict uh where to you know where to start in europe well i mean you need you need preparations you need emergency uh, routes you need you know passage agreements between countries these are already in place but you need to step up a force in this respect uh, uh to you know to move equipment quickly between uh, between allies uh um and also i mean in terms of for instance you know uh surveillance capabilities i mean nato has a very good uh um uh you know as a very good uh air ground surveillance uh initiative with 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 some with some strategic uh surveillance drones uh based in sigonella in italy but i think you know the ukrainian conflict uh has shown the need to you know uh improve this this capability because you know you, you you know intelligence and surveillance are are crucial today um and if you have a very good high on the enemy then it it will be more easy to you know to act accordingly and uh, also command and control and interoperability uh, are areas crucial for nato because you know countries need to be able to fight together in a proper way 
And if you don't train uh, together, if you don't have a constant exchange of, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, techniques, procedures uh, uh, between, you know, uh, military staff of different of different allies, you won't be able to effectively tackle, you know, a, a vast set of, of military challenges. Well, and of, yeah, I mean, yeah. For challenges, Rodrigo, I think that's sort of. It, there's so much to impact from everyone and whether it's what James, you, or what Matthew said, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast focusing on those issues, whether it's command and control, sunrise and sunset capabilities, but guys, like we're, we're approaching the end of the podcast right now. So, I mean, this is a great opportunity to, fa- to, to play our favorite game uh, on security hooligans, which is give NATO your policy prescription. So against the backdrop of what everybody said, you know, if you had the opportunity to consult, uh, you know, NATO's policy planning unit or the SAC or, you know, and I'll go around the, the table. I mean, can you please provide our listeners with maybe one or two core policy suggestions that they should contemplate and consider implementing? And for all of our listeners out there, uh, October 13th to 14th, NATO defense ministers uh, will be having their that next ministerial. Yeah. And of course, they're meeting with the Ramstein group. But Matt, uh, it's a little bit late over there in Tokyo. So why don't you get us off with sort of what your one or two core policy suggestions are uh, for NATO? Yeah, yeah. Before I before I pass out, uh, I would say number one, uh, I made reference to it earlier, um, would be establishing NATO permanent presences in in certain countries across the Central and Eastern European uh, region. Uh, one because it would send very positive signals to those countries that have that are you know staunch NATO allies, uh, but are also uh, very vulnerable, uh, you know, or have been and 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 are in the moment and would also send positive uh, deterrence uh, signals to would-be adversaries along uh, the eastern flank, notably uh, Russia, and, you know, as well, reinforce uh, the alliance's capabilities there. Um, It would also, I think, signify that, you know, those would argue that it would, you know, violate the the Russia-NATO founding act. It would send the signal that that act is now null and void because uh, Russia has uh, violated uh, the spirit of it. So uh, it's it's time to move on as we enter a new era where, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, force is is having a larger uh, influence. Um, and on a second, you know, just broader, you know, policy recommendation or wish would be to to continue engage uh, with part with global partners. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in Japan now, so it's, 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 it's thematic, but these countries are aware of, not only aware of the situation and, and the war in Ukraine, but are deeply concerned uh, about uh, Russia's uh, invasion, are, are shocked at it, and are strongly against the international system, uh, you know, its framework being uh, altered uh, by force. And it's important for NATO and uh, its partners to to come together in this type of moment when our values and and what the alliance stands for uh, is more important uh, than it has been in a a very long time. And these countries can also provide assistance to the alliance in in reasserting uh, its strength uh, and, and having more partners can only help uh, NATO and its allies uh, going forward. So that type of partnership, um, those, those types of partnerships rather, I should say, I think will only grow uh, in importance. 
All right. Well, Matt, that's a great talk. And obviously it's a bit of a political, uh, depending on where you stand on the NATO-Russia Foundation Act about having the bases permanently stationed there is one thing. Uh, Frederica, what about you? I mean, if you're sitting there with Benedetta Berti in the policy planning unit, what are the one or two options that you'd be giving her? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it will uh, it will for sure, you know, uh, be about the, the need not to ignore uh, the southern flank. I mean, of course, every everyone is focusing on the eastern flank and for, for a good reason. But at the same time, there are, you know, several challenges stemming from the, you know, stemming from the from the southern flank that are more long term in terms of, you know, impact. Uh, I'm speaking about, you know, food insecurity, climate change, you know, related threats, uh, uh, especially in Northern African countries in the Sahel, but also the Middle East. Uh, we have a proliferation of non-state actors in that in that in that area. Um, uh, so also institutional, you know, fragility in many countries. So how how are you how are we you know considering this this flank from a NATO perspective? So I think NATO really you know should you should uh, i wouldn't say rethink but at least you know review its way of, of engagement with you know partners in this area in in, in its southern flank uh, i mean the, the the mediterranean dialogue established in 1994 or the istanbul cooperation initiative 10 years later are very good uh, frameworks but uh, need to be updated i think um i recently wrote an article for sipa on this so um you know uh, there's there, there's a need to you know to uh, to show these partners that you know uh, a cooperation is not just about the provision of you know military capabilities or security sector reform but it's also about political uh, you know uh, uh, political cooperation and this means that nato must show an interest in these countries uh, must must also you know uh, show this through the i think the appointment of a special representative for this region for instance and also the need to create like in the part of on the part of nato create like some kind of you know on the fly or at least exposed performance indicators to assess what's the impact of the alliance security cooperation programs in in, in this region and uh so this is one 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 key area uh, uh which i which i would recommend to to benedetta and uh, another aspect is the uh the the need to you know to think in the long term, what what the relations with Russia are going to be, because I mean, um, of course, now it's not the time to to you know make any any forecast about you know uh, how they could evolve. It, it's very difficult, and of course, it's we are in a, in a situation of war in Europe. But in the longer term, I mean, uh, NATO is not going. Uh, I mean, sorry, Russia is not going to disappear anytime soon. Um, Probably. <laughs> so what 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 are the you know what are you know the assessments in uh, within NATO on this in this respect? So I think it's it's an important an important aspect. And last but not least, uh I mean the idea of three hundred sixty degrees uh you know approach which was outlined in in the Varsov summit in 2015, if if I remember correctly, it's a it's. I think it's important, but it's also at the same time a double-edged sword in the sense that you know, uh, you know, 
commit, you know, force NATO to commit a lot of resources in a lot of different areas, whereas its core task of collective defense has somewhat like been, you know, uh, diluted uh, in recent years. And uh, the, the the war in Ukraine has been a wake up call. So I think I think it, NATO should should kind of rethink it's this kind of, uh, you know, uh, all in passing approach and rather try to focus more uh, on on its core task uh, while trying to you know create partnership or strengthen partnership with with other organizations like the EU, like regional organizations, uh, especially in the southern flank like the African Union uh, and, and 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 others to you know to share the burden of you know security uh, 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 you know security in these regions. We're talking about sharing the burden, Federico. That's perfect. James in London Town, you started us off. So why didn't you take us home here? I mean, you're basically giving policy recommendations in your sleep. So again, uh, you're going, you know, you're meeting the section, you're meeting the SACRA. I mean, what are the one or two big policy issues that you would recommend uh, that they sh- that NATO should consider implementing? Yeah, I'm having traumatic flashbacks to all my uh, pre- previous projects as a, a RAND researcher working for, for national governments. And, uh, oh, don't worry, uh, <laughs> Matt's, Matt's bringing everybody back Japanese scotch, so uh, they'll be yeah. out on our field trip and stuff, but uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, sorry, James, go for it on that. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree with much of what's been said already. Um, so to, I guess to add a, a separate point, so I mean, I, I think really the key challenge here is, yeah, it's continuing to figure out what is NATO's kind of vision of the future world it wants to live in. And that means in the near term, you know, managing the relationship with Russia in particular, but then in the medium and the longer term, managing that relationship and the strategic competition with China and crucially understanding, you know, how Russia and China interact with each other and and how we kind of navigate that kind of increasingly multipolar world, because that is a, a kind of fundamental shift from NATO's history where it was always, you know, had one kind of clear focus in in terms of the territorial defense type missions. It was going to be the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, and then obviously more recently Russia. But looking to the future, it's we're talking about a broader strategic competition with more than one key player. And with, as we've discussed on this this kind of conversation today, the competition cutting across not just the military domain, but you know, economic domain, political domain, how we do elections, how we do supply chains how we educate people, you know, all sorts of all sorts of issues. And, and some of that is kind of inherently outside of NATO's immediate control because it is a military alliance. But I think continuing to develop the kind of NATO contribution to that broader strategic competition with in a multipolar world is, is the kind of key long-term goal and purpose. So, so kind of building on that, the question is then like in practical terms, what does some of that look like? And I think it it means continuing to kind of try and develop a common threat assessment, particularly as regards China, because actually, you know, people have come together. They're, they're clearly not completely united in their assessment of what to do with Russia, but people have come closer together on that in the wake of the recent invasion of Ukraine. Um, I think it means continuing to develop a develop an alliance that isn't just focused on the military instrument, but is encouraging broader approaches to security and resilience that are going to help the military instrument. So by that, I mean things like promoting innovation. Um, uh, it means promoting supply chain resilience. It means kind of promoting more robust, resilient defense industries in Europe and North America. Um, and it means 
promoting a kind of culture of innovation within NATO to be able to much more quickly take up new technologies, new ideas, new capabilities, and apply them to the kind of myriad threats that it might face in future. And I think the, the key message for me on all of those things is that, um, you know, policymakers are very good at spending money on technologies they're very good at setting up new structures or institutions you know we have something called diana now which is the defense um, kind of innovation accelerator for the north atlantic which conveniently spells diana i suspect it probably they started diana and came up with the name Do you think they worked backwards and they yeah said, i think it's, it's probably <laughs> a backward <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but you know we have things like that that's and we have an innovation fund uh all of which is supposed to give us you know shiny new toys to play with fantastic but it's can you then change a lot of the unsexy stuff so can you change you know how we do procurement processes in the public sector and, and all these things which aren't very glossy and exciting but actually that's how change gets done in the real world um so i think i, I think that's you know there's the there's the old adage that like culture eats strategy for breakfast and i think that is incredibly true and and as we move towards like a broader conception of strategic competition they're going to be more and more complex challenges for NATO to deal with. And if it isn't got some of the kind of basic internal plumbing sorted out in terms of its culture, its mindset, its access to people and skills, I think it, it's going to struggle. So, yeah, it needs to really make sure we continue to proactively change the alliance ahead of a crisis rather than learning painful lessons during a crisis and then and then complaining that we didn't do something earlier so yeah for me i think that's it it's it's continued to you know focus on the unsexy stuff i know it's not it doesn't make for you know good um photo ops for politicians necessarily but i think it's incredibly vital but you know that's why james they call in the hooligans we roll up our sleeves and we get the hard work done so i mean taken together i think the 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 takeaway here is that i mean NATO is trending in the right directions. There are some areas that are stronger than others and other work needs to get done. But like I said, for all of our listeners, we're going to be putting together a policy takeaways. So Frederico, Matt, and James are going to be providing all of this guidance. I mean, this wisdom on wisdom, and I'm out here singing Drake, so I really got to improve on that. So for all of our listeners, we're going to wrap up here. But before we sign off, it's uh, all, we always end our uh, security hooligans on a light note. So, uh, Matt, let's start with you. You got a long flight back to to Europe from Japan. So, what are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you reading for everybody out there? Wow, I mean, it is a long flight. I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even have enough things to do to make up the the whole flight. But I'm 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 currently reading. I guess it's very thematic. Uh, a book called "At the Gates of Europe" by Serhiy Blochy, who's a Ukrainian uh, historian, and it's it's about the 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 history of the nation of Ukraine, um, and it's it's quite interesting. I would recommend to anyone who's who's um, interested in it and who wants to kind of go deep from the from the beginning up until up until today. Uh, in terms of in terms of what I'm watching, uh, I'm, I'm not, I haven't had much time to watch anything recently, and also uh, the Premier League is, is on a break now for two weeks, so I am going to to to, to struggle without that. Uh, but I'm I'm very keen to hear any recommendations you guys have because I got to start downloading stuff for for my flight home this weekend. Well, Matt, who's your club here in the Premier League? This is this could get competitive. We talked about a hyper competitive landscape for NATO, but uh... No, but my, my club has, has and is, has been and is is Arsenal, and uh, it's been a good start to the season. So I want the games to 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 get going again, so we can keep it up. 
Well, I'll keep James out of it, but we know there's really only one king of North London uh, in Tottenham, but uh, we'll be watching the Derby as it comes up, so (laughs) we can watch highlights of it. Uh, Frederica, what about you? You just got back from Costa Rica. Uh, What are you listening? What are you watching? Going to any concerts or anything uh, in in D.C. area? Well, not not concert, actually. Uh, Just, you know, some aperitivo with with the colleagues uh, (laughs) in the last few days. But we will have the SIPA forum uh, approaching um, uh, beginning of next week. So everyone is pretty busy. Uh, We have a lot of, you know, uh, things to prepare uh, for this super uh, important event for us. So it's a, it's a, you know, I would say a very busy month overall September. So let's see what what uh, what we'll have, um, you know, uh, uh, after that uh, in terms of you know social life, uh, and we have also the Italian election. So it's a it's a double it's not it's a double uh, double busy <laughs> week for me. Well, just keep it going, double espresso, maybe. And uh, and James, again, taking us home here. What uh, what are you listening to in London Town? Always a sleek uh, and stylish place to be. Yeah, I'm. Oh, wow. what at the moment I'm watching the capture, which don't some of your listeners might be watching. So it's I think it's BBC, but it's probably on HBO and other things overseas. It's like what 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 are the nefarious uses deep fake technology could be used for? It's very um, it's very like the Bodyguard. If anyone's watched that kind of British drama. Uh, in terms of what I'm, I'm kind of listening to. I've been listening to a lot of. There's a British rapper called Dave who lives or grew up quite close to where I live in London, um, and he's got a really good. Um, he's on his like second or third album now, but he's got his like really good album called Psychodrama, which I would heartily recommend, and probably offers like quite a different <laughs> vision of what like modern Britain looks like to anyone who's watched um, the TV in the last week with the state funeral. And then in terms of what I'm reading, uh, I mean, I'm a space geek. I do a lot of space research. I'm reading a book called The Calculating Stars, which is like an alternate kind of sci-fi history of the space race in the 60s. And like, what if what if we were to get off the planet really quickly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then all of the like civil rights movement and all of that stuff like playing out at the same time as that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting geeky space book, but also kind of a social history and commentary as well, which is quite, quite good fun. Well, James, I'll have to check out that new album, and it goes without saying, whenever we organize the Security Hooligans Fest, uh, maybe we're going to have some preferred access to Dave, you know, backstage access, uh, some mixtapes and stuff like that. So, guys, all very Let's see hot. what I can do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you, just gave him, you just gave him huge publicity. The least he can do is he could write the jingle. Roger for your for your podcast security who well our podcast right NATO twenty yeah sorry scored by Dave but uh, you know we'll have to give James like some uh, some royalties or intellectual property credits Uh, on my end guys here in Central Europe uh, for my Genosen my comrades I just finished watching Cleo uh, on Netflix which is the story of a a Stasi agent uh, who was obviously done wrong by uh, you know by her boss and how she takes revenge uh, with a you know, a Mr. Magoo style member of West Berlin. So heavily check everybody to check that out. And uh, yeah, training camp for the Montreal Canadiens opens today. But on that note, guys, all of our listeners, everybody who shared, who liked, who's talked about security hooligans, thank you so much. We're continuing to do our best on it. Stay tuned for the next episode. Don't forget to smash subscribe. And from everybody here on the security hooligans, goodbye, Auf Wiedersehen, and have a great day, everybody.